Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a pleasure to have all of you here with us. I'm Christopher Nelson, the president of St. John's College, and I'm pleased to welcome you to the fifth lecture in a series sponsored by St. John's College and the United States Naval Academy to honor the memory of Lieutenant Commander Eric S. Christensen. Eric was an alumnus of the U.S. Naval Academy and St. John's College, where he attended the Graduate Institute while also teaching English at the Naval Academy, sharing his passion for Herman Melville, one of the authors read by students at uh, both of our institutions. Only a few years later, in June of 2005, while serving as a task force unit commander of a SEAL team in Afghanistan, Lieutenant Commander Christensen led a daring mission to rescue a SEAL reconnaissance squad engaged in a fierce firefight with overwhelming Taliban forces in the mountains of Afghanistan. He and 10 other SEALs died in that effort. For his service, he was awarded numerous medals and honors, including the Bronze Star with a V for valor and a Purple Heart. Eric is survived by his father, Admiral Edward K. Christensen, and his mother, Suzanne Carrico Samsel Christensen, both of whom are with us this evening. I'm also pleased to recognize the man who initiated and inspirited this memorial series, another alumnus of St. John's College and an officer in the Navy, Lieutenant Michael A. Zampella. It was Lieutenant Zampella who was inspired sufficiently by Commander Christensen's education at our two schools and his service and his sacrifice to our country to organize this lecture series and raise funds annually to keep it going. He's asked me to thank those of you who've contributed to this series and to appeal to those of you who'd like to join the list of sponsors by making a contribution to the college in Commander Christensen's honor. Friends and family of Commander Christensen established this memorial lecture series to create closer ties between the two alma maters of the commander in Annapolis and to educate the public about civilian military relations and the place of the liberal arts in naval and military education. Our two schools of higher learning both hold that a life dedicated to the service of our country is also dedicated to its grounding principles in freedom, and that an education in the arts of freedom, liberally, literally a liberal education, is necessary to protect those principles from attack or atrophy. At St. John's College, we recognize this necessity in part by providing, providing the highest level of financial support under the Yellow Ribbon Program, a federal educational assistance program available to post 9-11 active duty veterans and their dependents. On behalf of the college, I'm pleased to welcome so many of our friends from the Brigade of Midshipmen and to thank Commander Deborah Fermel and Lieutenant Jared Seuss from the Academy's English Department for their assistance in arranging this visit and the participation from the Academy's side. Commander Fermel also holds a master's degree from St. John's College. It's now my privilege to introduce our speaker this evening, Angelo Cotevilla, Professor Emeritus of International Relations at Boston University, former U.S. Navy officer, Foreign Service officer, and staff member of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. He's been instrumental in developing programs for missile defense, was a senior research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and is the author of 13 books and many, many articles about the instruments of power, the nature of regimes as shaped by their national character, and the functions of intelligence and statecraft in managing issues of war and peace. Mr. Cotavella will invite questions at the conclusion of his remarks. And while we don't have a roving mic, uh, I'll be asking you to uh, stand when you ask a question and to project as loudly as you can uh, so that uh, all can hear. But uh, Mr. Cotavilla has agreed that he'll repeat the question for those who may not have heard and uh, go ahead and answer them. It's now my uh, pleasure to introduce Professor Cotavilla. His lecture this evening is entitled On the Natural Law of War and Peace. Professor.
Eric Christensen was a warrior who also was a philosopher. That's what he was doing at St. John's College. Explaining why the peace on which the practice of philosophy depends requires successful statecraft, including success in war. His life testified to the interdependence of war, peace, and philosophy. 2,500 years earlier, Socrates had done the same thing. He spoke with young men about good and evil after having carried his spear in the Athenian phalanx. Socrates would not speak with any young man who had not acted, who had not served in the Athenian armed forces. That is because those who have served in the armed forces already know the most basic distinction in philosophy. And that is the distinction between the good and the pleasant, that they are not the same, you see. And that is a, is a truth that can be learned truly only through experience. Like Socrates and Eric Christensen, we are lovers of our country and of truth. Truth with a capital T. What is true by nature. We are lovers of what America's founders call the laws of nature and nature's God. And to ask, what guidance do these laws give us about war and peace in our time? That question is urgent because Americans have enjoyed peace for only about 30 of the last 100 years. America's armed forces have won essentially all their battles. Winning battles naturally leads to winning wars and hence to earning peace and security. But already by 1950, George Kennan had noted that the American people's security has diminished. Today, we look at the peace and security of the 1950s much as Kennan looked nostalgically back to 1905. How come? How come things have happened so much against what people wanted to happen? Results that are so contrary to nature and to the intentions of those involved do not happen because of mere errors in policy. They happen only from mistakes regarding first principles. What are these first principles? What are the first principles of, state, of statecraft? There's been no shortage of controversy among American statesmen through the past hundred years about what these principles are, what the laws of nature are concerning peace and war. Woodrow Wilson argued against Theodore Roosevelt. Dean Acheson and Harry Truman argued against Robert A. Taft and Douglas MacArthur. Henry Kissinger, Robert McNamara, Lyndon Johnson argued against Barry Goldwater. Candidate George W. Bush argued against President George W. Bush. Though they disagreed fundamentally, however, all believed that they were advocating the truly right way for nations to behave, especially for this nation. In this, they have been consistent with America's founders who meant to establish and to run a great nation on the basis of what is right simply. In fact, our, they knew that our very civilization is based on understanding that man and nature exist and behave according to laws that our minds can grasp by observation and study. Only recently has it become customary to distinguish between science and philosophy, between facts and values. Formerly, the study of physics and chemistry as well as of ethics and politics was known as natural philosophy. The fundamental distinction then was between truth and opinion. The people who built America believed that attention to the laws of nature and nature's God was the key to thriving. They believed it because they knew that ignoring or flouting reality, that banging one's head against reality does not end well. So what is this thing called natural law? And what does natural law demand of statesmanship and war? Natural law is very simply the complex of the laws by which the world works, all of it. 
Physics and chemistry remind us that natural law is inflexible and self-enforcing, that what humans imagine is really quite irrelevant to the things that really are. You may identify as a bird. You may eat only bird food. You may cover your body with feathers and flap them around. You may, however, decide to jump off a cliff flapping those wind feathers and chirping. But Mother Nature will not deal kindly with you because you will have violated her laws. She will punish you. If you want to fly, she tells you you had better learn about her laws concerning the pressure and speed of fluids. By the same token, no amount of will, of commitment on your part will allow you to make salt out of two sodium atoms. You know, just won't work. Plants are just as subject to inflexible laws as are immaterial things. Regardless of anybody's opinion, apples and oranges and avocados thrive under different conditions. That is why judgments about farming have to be right by nature. Not long ago, the Soviet Union was following, only following scientific consensus when it soaked the whole and spoiled countless amounts of seeds in order to try genetically modifying them according to the theory that inherited characteristics are transmissible. Well, it didn't work. Uh, in today's America, scientific consensus has it that the globe is warming. And yet citrus growers are mo moving their operations southward, not northward, because the trees happen not to share that consensus. Mother Nature does not care what anybody thinks. Wild animals are hardwired to survive and thrive. They move and reproduce, operate by day or night, as best fits the species. They can't help doing the right things for themselves. Not so human beings. Unlike animals, we are free to do the wrong things for ourselves. But nature is just as clear about what it takes for humans to, to thrive and survive as it is about what it takes for any other species to do it. Like horses and wolves, we need food and community to survive. But to fulfill ourselves as creatures that are neither more, mere animals nor gods, we have to do the things that are peculiar to this species. And what are they? Well, consider the most common, concise compendium of natural law the Ten Commandments. But isn't that just a sect of peculiarly Jewish ideas that draw their authority from the claim that Moses got them from God? Think again. Try reversing each of these commandments and ask how humans would fare living by that reverse list. Try it. Have many gods and disrespect them all. Never stop to rest or consider whence you came or whither you go. Dishonor your father and your mother. Kill as you please. Take what you can from whomever you can. Fornicate with whomever you can. Lie, betray, envy, scheme against those around you. Not even criminal gangs can survive on that basis. Nor could any individual be happy who lived by such counsels. At best, he might become a tyrant. But having no friends, his choice would be whether to die like Stalin kind of a miserable, lingering death, or like Ceausescu, killed by his, by his cronies. Hence, we are forced to conclude that the Ten Commandments just happen to be a pretty good summation of what nature requires for people to live human lives. That's true whether these were discerned by Moses, given by nature's creator, or jotted at random by a stone-carving monkey. Moses gives a bunch of other precepts applicable to man which are subject to the same test. How do they relate to human nature? Are they tr true, objectively true or not? Here's one. Thou shalt not suffer a sorcerer to live. Is that a Jewish prejudice? Consider. Magic claims that nature is capricious, but it can be mastered by occult practices. 
Mother Nature, however, decrees that people who live by magic will be stuck in misery. In fact, all human improvement depends on reading and heeding nature's open book. And so, it turns out that uh, banning magic is, in fact, a precondition for living a fully human life. What about uh, Moses' condemnation of uh, <clears throat> sodomy? Is that another Jewish prejudice? In fact, whatever else that practice does, it sure doesn't propagate the species. So perhaps this is simply yet another of Mother Nature's warnings. The point here is not that the Torah is the apex of natural law about man. Aristotle, Cicero, many others have delved into the subject far more deeply and systematically. Rather, the point is that our civilization is full of pretty accurate descriptions of what happens when mother nature, when human nature, humans disregard mother nature. How does natural law apply to actions? In fact, all actions can only be understood by their natural consequences. Naturally, all movement aims at some state of rest, at some destination. We move, we walk, we speak, we shut up for certain purposes, each of which is for the sake of ends that, are we, that we value even more. The old saying, not even a dog wags his tail for nothing, is a good definition of the philosophical term teleology. I fix my tractor so that I can till the ground, so that I can grow my grapes, I can sell, sell them and maintain my household, fulfill my duties. By the way, uh, the introduction of me didn't mention that I run a vineyard. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I don't enjoy sitting on the tractor for the joy of sitting on the tractor, mind you. <laughs> uh, I, I work for a purpose, like everybody else works for a purpose. So human all human trades or professions are naturally about producing something. What is, the, what, is this the natural law? Yes, in fact, all of them do bring advantages to the tradesman. Yet by nature, each is about producing a good peculiar to itself. Plants that grow, buildings that stand, ships that float, plumbing that doesn't leak, shoes that fit and last, medicine that heals. Mother Nature, what does Mother Nature do when humans aim at results other than the ones proper to them? Well, Mother Nature punishes. Nature makes humans suffer the violation's consequences. Buildings built badly fall down on you. Bad ships leak. Bad shoes chafe and fall apart. Uh, tractors badly driven knock down the vines. I know that. <laughs> That's why human activity cannot be understood in terms of power-seeking or pleasure-seeking. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, I can imagine. <laughs> There's, a, there's a, um, uh, a road sign in, on the road that leads to my place, uh, which is full of vineyards. And it's got a, uh, a figure of a, of a guy driving a tractor and drinking a bottle of wine. And the tractor's sort of uh, uh, at 45 degrees. Well, if, if we did that, if we pleased ourselves with wine while running our tractors, we, wouldn't be doing, we would not be producing very good wine, or very much of it. Uh, human activity has to be understood in terms of the things that they produce and produce well. Nature obliges soldiers, and the same thing goes for, for, um, for statesmen and uh, soldiers. Nature obliges statesmen and soldiers to produce certain goods just as it obliges shoemakers and shipwrights. So what are the goods, the natural ends of the activity known as statesmanship? The Chinese Empire's millennial claim to rule is a production of Tiananmen, heavenly peace. Caesar Augustus's claim to the imperial power that replaced Rome's warring republic was that he was the princeps pacis, the Prince of Peace. Then, as the Roman Empire was falling, 
St. Augustine defined statesmanship for the next thousand years as, the, as, as intended to produce the tranquility of order. He defined the, the uh, role of the temporal ruler as the, produce, as the defensor pacis, the defender of the peace. 1,400 years later, Abraham Lincoln summarized his objective as, quote, peace among ourselves and with all nations. Niccolò Machiavelli and Thomas Hobbes are, if anything, more insistent on judging any exercise of statesmanship on the degree of peace that it produces, especially internal peace. Indeed, the incapacity to rest from war really does seem to be the punishment that Mother Nature imposes for incompetent statesmanship. But if peace is so essential to well-being, why so often does it take war to establish it? Simply because by nature, each of us wants his or her way. We human beings share in Eve's lively appetites and in Adam's irresponsibility. Individually and collectively, we want to be a law unto ourselves. Statecraft is the art of reconciling all sides' claims to their own desires, and perhaps to their own peace. We fight wars so that we may have the peace, peace that we want, our version of peace. That is why any peace is what one side earns for itself by defeating the other side's attempt to get the peace that it wanted. Still, although war is the most intensive activities, it aims naturally at a state of rest neither more nor less than any other activity. This is why approaching war as anything other than the pursuit of peace is naturally so self-defeating. Approaching war as anything other than the pursuit of a specific peace, of a very specific peace, is self-defeating. Consider how two of history's greatest warriors failed. Napoleon never thought of an end to his string of battlefield victories. Hence, as Charles de Gaulle wrote, Napoleon broke France's sword by striking it unceasingly. His failure to aim at peace more than nullified his valor as a warrior. Hannibal, during the Second Punic War, failed to force Rome, uh, stayed on the offensive, even after having failed to force Rome to negotiate. Thus did he subordinate strategic logic to operational logic. This is a, perhaps the most common mistake ever made. It's also called failing to look at the forest for the trees, being so deep in the trees that you forget to look at the forest. Nature, however, leads the warrior to ask, when will this end? The warrior's contact with the enemy presses him to end the fighting and to do it as fast as possible. Statesmen are not similarly urged to consider this necessity. But Aristotle, who did consider both the role of the warrior and the statesman, noted that peace is the natural end of the statesman's art. Why? Well, because your victory is what makes possible your peace. In fact, your peace is not reachable except by your victory. Victory, of course, comes in different forms. Everything from the enemy's annihilation or enslavement, as was the rule in ancient warfare, or sovereignty over border provinces, as was common in European 18th century warfare. But all forms share a denominator. The vanquished no longer disturbs the winner's enjoyment of his peace. This is the practical meaning of victory. If you can't go on to something else in peace, if you cannot think of something else other than your last problem, you have not won. You're, you have not achieved victory. Victory means the capacity to forget about the last problem and to go on to the next one. Victory. 
forcing the enemy to acquiesce to one's own enjoyment of one's own peace, however, naturally presupposes a coherent understanding of that peace. During the past hundred years, however, American statesmen, American statecraft has not produced peace because progressive statesmen, beginning with such as Woodrow Wilson, Charles Evans Hughes, Herbert Hoover, Hoover, and Franklin Roosevelt have pursued concepts of peace that are literally out of the realm of possibility, literally out of this world. The, that is because the enemies which these statesmen have, have designated are purely creatures of their own minds, respectively. Autocracy, Woodrow Wilson saw the, the enemy to be defeated as autocracy. He and Franklin Roosevelt fought against war itself, as did Herbert Hoover. World disorder. Franklin Roosevelt's favorite enemy was ancient evils, ancient ills. Ask yourselves, whom would we have to kill in order to defeat these enemies? What would our bombs have to destroy to defeat these enemies? To make war, according to the de dictionary definition, is to destroy or to bend the persons and causes that stand in the way of our peace. Victory comes when none troubles our enjoyment of our peace any longer. If you have made war, killed and destroyed, and yet you cannot enjoy peace, it means that you've killed the wrong people. If you have made war, killed and destroyed, and yet you cannot enjoy peace, you're doing something wrong. For a century, American blood and treasure has been committed to killing and destroying certain people as if they embody the abstractions in our statesmen's own minds. But who are the people whose death would end war itself? Who are the people whose death would bring about world order? Who are the people whose death would establish liberal democracy? Whose death would end ancient evils? Whose death would reconcile historic enemies? The point here is that the conjuring of unreal enemies makes it impossible to ask who might be the persons whose killing or constraint would deliver peace vis-a-vis -vis the actual living people who are shooting at us. Because that is a real, that, that is the actual problem. Some people are shooting at us. And the immediate problem is how to end that threat. And to imagine that one is dealing with something else simply takes away from the concrete task of figuring out how to rid ourselves of the problem that we actually face. The fact that we have not done that is the principal reason why America's military campaigns have been waged without a reasonable plan for achieving a better peace. Moreover, since Korea 1950, the US government has explicitly disavowed seeking military victories. Understanding this 100-year divorce of force from purpose requires attention to the arguments between Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. In a nutshell, Theodore Roosevelt, who was the apostle of the big stick, rejoiced in America's emergence as a great power because he believed that the US government could and should use this power to secure America's enjoyment of domestic peace and tranquility better than it could have in George Washington's time. Like George Washington, whom he called, quote, the best of great men and the greatest of good men, Theodore Roosevelt wanted to mind America's business as, quote, our interests guided by our justice shall, shall counsel, unquote. TR regarded power as a means of keeping trouble away from America. The enemy was whoever troubled America's peace. War was a temporary measure to secure that peace. By contrast, Woodrow Wilson has started his career denouncing the hurdles that America's founders had placed 
in the way of forceful human improvement. For him, the enemy at home and abroad was everything and anything that stood in the way of human improvement. For him, America itself existed, and he used the word only, only to defeat such enemies. To improve America, Wilson pushed prohibition. This, of course, started a war at home. To improve the world, Wilson invented the League of Nations. For Wilson, Washington's and the Gospels admonition to mind one's own imperfections, looking not for specks in others' eyes, was priggishness. Such was his vision of the peace that his League of Nations would secure, that when senators asked him how his commitment to everlasting peace differed from a commitment to perpetual war, he wasn't able to answer. He couldn't answer. In short, Wilson erased the distinction between war and peace. In short, the peace at which Theodore Roosevelt aimed was America's peace to be secured by minding America's business, that is by speaking softly to foreigners and by carrying a big stick to bash whomever would interfere with America. George Washington, John Quincy Adams, Theodore Roosevelt had taken for granted that America's business came first always and that this business requires jealous attention to squaring ends and means. Jealous attention to squaring ends and means. Words have to be smaller than the stick. Wilson, however, collapsed the distinction between America's business and everybody else's business. He voiced limited, limitless objectives, and he gave little, if any, thought about how America's armed forces could actually achieve them. Yet Wilson won the hearts and minds of the subsequent century statesmen. Reading Charles Evans Hughes, Herbert Hoover, FDR, Dean Acheson, John F. Kennedy, Henry Kissinger, Bush 41 and 43, and Obama, we might imagine that, respectively, the world had united with America in disarming, in outlawing war, in eliminating ancient evils, ancient ills, that it was policing the world through the UN, that nothing could stand in the way of freedom, that satisfying the USSR had tamed it, that a new world order was a borning, that democracy is conquering the Middle East, and that Islam is terrorism's solution. None of this, of course, is true. Although most of these statesmen were not shy about sending Americans to fight abroad, none explained how doing so could materialize the marvelous vistas that they sketched. From Washington to Theodore Roosevelt, American statesmen had worked on the realization that the world is made up of different folks who want incompatible things. That is why the essence of statecraft's craft is jealous attention to, our own, to what our own power can do to secure our own interests. But because statesmen from Wilson's time to our own had voiced certainty that all peoples share the same objectives for peace and progress, they have felt justified in dispensing with their craft's essence. That is why, far from producing peace, the, the past hundred year statecraft resembles less the engineering of sound buildings and ships than rich than incantations cited at ritual human sacrifices. Each of these ventures have given us fewer victories, less peace and more war. This is what happens when you behave as if the world is not run by natural law, but rather by magic, and that you can identify with whatever image you wish and that identity will become reality. It just doesn't happen that way. Each set of statesmen have emphasized one or more aspects of that departure from statesmanship nature. Each has earned the penalties that Mother Nature imposes on unnatural behavior. Let us see what truths Mother Nature has been trying to teach us. 
1921, Secretary of State Charles Evans Hughes brokered the Washington Treaties. These scrapped more naval tonnage than all of history's wars had ever sunk and fixed the major powers ratios of naval power. Another of these treaties also agreed, in, in, in another of these treaties, Japan, America, and, nine, and eight other, seven other nations agreed to respect China's integrity and sovereignty. All of this in exchange for America's promise not to fortify our Pacific basis. Hence, America disempowered itself from securing the objective to that treaty. America's best and brightest believed that this secured peace because they were sure that all peoples shared their consensus, their armaments caused war. Hence, their logic said, limit the means of war and you will limit the will to war. But in fact, the natural chain of logic leads in the opposite, opposite direction, from ends to means. That is why these treaties secured not peace, rather they secured Japan's supremacy in the Western Pacific, China's dismemberment, Pearl Harbor, Corregidor, etc. Herbert Hoover believed that the world had outlawed war by the 1929 Kellogg-Briand Pact, that wasn't true. Franklin Roosevelt spent the first seven years of his presidency lecturing America and the world about the need to act as if it were true. He spent the war years trying to tell America that the alliance with Stalin was based not on absolute necessity, but rather on a basic identity of purposes between Stalin and liberal democracy. That wasn't true either. Naturally, because untruths necessarily cause confusion, these untruths cause profound divisions among Americans, divisions which last to us and plague us to this day. Franklin Roosevelt, and especially Dean Acheson and Harry Truman, fostered a consensus that finally, the United Nations had brought law and order to international affairs. So precious was that consensus and illusion that they sent some 50,000 Americans to die in Korea in what they called the police action to preserve law and order. Naturally, that sacrifice resulted in something else, preserving an enemy that now targets nuclear weapons on America. Douglas MacArthur had protested, quote, in war there is no substitute for victory. Mother Nature nodded, yeah. The ruling consensus thought MacArthur was a dinosaur. Under Presidents John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, the practice of defeating global evils by committing US military forces against foreign enemies without intending to defeat them became explicit. JFK redeemed his promise to bear any burden in freedom's defense, presumably against the Soviet Union by sending Americans to fight in Vietnam. Lyndon Johnson explained, I remember seeing this on TV, he explained that military victory was impossible in Vietnam for anybody because he said the enemy in Vietnam, quote, is poverty, ignorance, and disease, unquote. He and Nixon rotated some 12 million Americans in and out of there in the service of Fighting what? Poverty, ignorance, and disease? Well, that's what he said. Ho Chi Minh and the Soviets had other ideas. These ideas were more in tune with Mother Nature. So did the North Vietnamese soldier who drove his tank through the U.S. Embassy gate just after the last Americans had lifted off from the roof of the embassy compound with Vietnamese hanging on to the skids. A few years later, the great consensus spoke through Harvard's Kissinger and Richard Nixon to the effect that nuclear weapons had sobered the Soviet Politburo. All America had to do for the Soviets to join in Wilson's dream of world order was to make US nuclear forces incapable of targeting the Soviet military 
or of interfering with Soviet missiles targeted on, on America. The US government would not use would not strategic forces because using them would do us no good. It would simply hold them as a scarecrow. The government crafted the forces and Kissinger crafted the treaties that embodied this vision. Forces, by the way, that were built to be specifically incapable of destroying hardened Soviet military targets. In 1972, Kissinger, as he was presenting the treaties to the Senate, spoke of having banished nuclear war. Eight years later, the defense secretary for Jimmy Carter, a noted war hawk, had to tell America that the Soviets were far advanced in preparation to fight, survive, and win a nuclear war. You see, those who pay attention to natural law build things that, if used, would do them some good. Remember, not even a dog wags his tail for nothing. As a few years after that, as the Soviet monster was croaking of disaffection, Bush 41 tried to save it by massive transfusions of US cash and untied loans, which of course were never repaid. He also told the crowd in Ukraine's capital that they should be good Soviet citizens. This was the voice of the US establishment consensus which valued the dream of U.S.-Soviet cooperation over the real prospect of undoing a real enemy. Ukrainians and Americans shook their heads in disbelief, but this is what Bush 41, supported by the great consensus, believed. The same president, the same consensus, decided that since Saddam Hussein's Iraq had violated world order by absorbing Kuwait, the US government would conduct a police action to reestablish the borders. At the time, Saddam was no enemy of America. A half millennium earlier, Niccolò Machiavelli had voiced a perennial principle of natural law. People ought to be caressed or extinguished. Bush 41, however, assumed that a new world, new world order, would follow his bellum interruptus. And so, by harming Saddam without eliminating him, he ended up making him the Middle East's paladin of anti-Americanism. The troops which Bush then had to station in the Saudi soil to deal with this newly menacing Middle East ended up energizing Muslim Jihad against America. Bush 43 and Barack Obama differed only verbally and quantitatively in their, their approach to this Jihad. Essentially, both ordered the US Armed Forces to do the same thing they had done in Vietnam, hunt down hostile groups and individuals, while the rest of the government infuses these societies with economic aid and social reform. They did this eschewing explicitly any plans for ending the conflict, never mind winning it. With various degrees of emphasis, both went ba bent backwards to counter suggestions that the Muslims who attack America do so for reasons related to Islam. In fact, both refused to identify any causes of anti-American terrorism. Bush 43's proposal for the Department of Homeland Security states that terrorism will be with us indefinitely because, quote, modernity itself is the cause. Obama described terrorism as, quote, violent extremism. Thus, he moved the problem further into abstraction. But the blood of hundreds of innocents and the fears of millions are not abstract. Ordinary Americans' desire to live peacefully is natural. So is, re is resentment of a consensus that shows no signs or, or plans to deliver peace. Therefore, the question imposes itself. What has this consensus been missing? What has, been, what has Mother Nature been trying to teach us 
about how to deal with war so as to obtain peace. The lessons are neither new nor complex. They will surprise only those whose intellectual horizons are limited by the consensus. First, foreign relations involve dealing with foreigners. What are foreigners? Foreigners are people whose cultures, priorities, interests are their own, not ours. Above all, they are people whose business is their own. The sine qua non of peace among individuals, communities, nations, is to recognize different people's natural, ineffable focus on themselves and distinguishing what is our business and what is others' business. Others may not like what we do in pursuit of our own business. They are much less likely to forgive intrusion into what they consider their business. By nature as well, statesmen are their people's fiduciaries. Minding the business of one's own nation is a task that stretches the capacity of the very finest statesmen. Just as it is impossible to serve two masters, it is impossible to serve more than one nation at a time. Nor is the attempt to do so legitimate. John Quincy Adams rightly reproved suggestions that the US help one side or another in conflicts within or among foreign peoples by asking who appointed as judges in their causes. By nature, they alone get to decide what they want for themselves. Second, by that very nature, we alone get to decide how important anything is to us and what we do about it. We alone are responsible for ourselves. That is why decisions about how to mind such business as we decide is our own come first, while the needs, desires, views, interests of foreigners are naturally incidental. Like everybody else, we are the only ones on whom we can count to defend our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor. Hence, alliances are subject to the same rule of nature as bank loans. The more you need them, the less they're available. The less you need them, the more they're available. Even it, is, it is absolutely unnatural even to question whether our, own, whether our own interests should come first. It is unnatural to question whether our own interests should come first. Third, earning the respect for living peacefully as we please requires fulfilling commitments, especially dealing harshly with those whom, with whomever disrespects us. That is because the respect is the practical meaning of honor in international affairs, and nations exist only insofar as they are respected. How precious honor may be may be seen in a 1791 memo from Alexander Hamilton to George Washington on how to respond to Britain's possible movement of troops across US territory to attack Spain and New Orleans. Hamilton outlined the ways in which Washington could ignore or color Britain's affront. But he ended by counseling that were Britain's transits to have violated American honors, the disasters of war with Britain would have to be suffered for the sake of America's honor. It is that important. Fourth, while America's honor, American forces have earned honor arguably more than any in history, American statesmen's failure to draw peace from their victory is historic in size and has drawn down the reservoir of respect for, Americans, for America among foreigners and most importantly, among us Americans as well. The consensus from such as Henry Kissinger uh, blames the American people for insufficient support of long-range policy and for isolationism. But the discrepancy between the declared objectives, the sacrifices, and the results has been impossible to hide. 
it would be unnatural not to note this enormous discrepancy between the declared objectives, the sacrifices, and the results that have been achieved. Woodrow Wilson's promises could not possibly have been fulfilled, nor could the promises made on behalf of the United Nations have been fulfilled. What is the natural reaction to using forces capable of overwhelming those who are facing, that are facing them and yet not doing it? Actions such as in Korea, in Vietnam, and in the Middle East in our time make sense only to those trained to suppress the revulsion felt by ordinary human beings. Fifth and finally, our experiences with Mother Nature tell us that those old simpletons, George Washington, John Quincy Adams, Abe Lincoln, and Theodore Roosevelt were right along with Machiavelli and Michael Corleone. Don't go looking for trouble. Make nice with everybody. But if you have to fight, then fight with all you've got to defeat them as quickly as possible. Sending signals, partial commitments, shows of force, these convey stupidity and invite contempt. Yes, all wars are foggy and require adjustments, but Mother Nature supplies a compass by which to navigate the fog. That compass's needle keeps pointing straight to the reason you fought in the first place, and that is your understanding of the peace, peace you are seeking, and that needle points along the only path to that peace, and that is the path of victory. Thank you for your attention.